Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Hello. You've found your way to Burned by Books, a podcast for obsessive readers and writers who love to talk about contemporary literature. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Welcome back. What would it take to live a purposeful life in the era of late capitalism? How might an intentional community that didn't privilege gender or skin color and which didn't accede to the ceaseless drumbeat for production and output come into being? This is one of the core questions driving the narrative of Sarah Thungam Matthews' debut novel, All This Could Be Different. Sneha, a recent college graduate sent to the U.S. on her Indian parents' hard-won savings, has relocated to Milwaukee to try and climb the corporate ladder. What at first feels like success and a flush bank account begins to show cracks and fissures. Her love life, often couched in a tentative lust for women without obligation, but with regular guilt, finds a focus in the enigmatic dancer Marina, whose past entanglements and present biases make her a problematic choice. Bounding every turn in Snea's life are her vividly drawn cast of friends. Tom, the college chum, who's a bro's bro with occasional glimmers of comprehension that the world has been organized to make his life easy. There's Tig, a friend who has utopian ideas for how to make a community of friends and family that can batten the hatches against society's tempests. And Amit, whose unwavering patience with Sneha and his longtime addict friend KJ reveals something true about the nature of friendship. The relationships in Sarah's novel are never simple, 
in that they mirror the complications of real life and the constant work and joy and sorrow of trying to build and tend friendships that work as family. If there's a villain here, it is the fingers of capital that probe and invade the private spaces of community, born and built. We see it in the criminalization of addiction, the abusiveness and racism of housing and eviction, the income inequality that is prized and performed in every corner of American life, and in its systems of legal and paralegal punishment of non-white bodies. I wish that I could adequately describe the voice that Sarah builds and experiments with in this novel. It is indeed one of a kind, and her dexterity and fearlessness with language engulfs the reader, sometimes with such dexterity that the vividness competes with reality itself. Her descriptions of food, sex, deprivation, sorrow, and discovery are matched by her drawing of the Midwestern landscape as contrasted with Sneha's birth home in India. Robert Jones Jr. describes it best when he writes that, quote, Matthews captures the complexities and contradictions and dissonances of life with astounding aplomb and care. Welcome to the show, Sarah Thungum Matthews. What a pleasure to be here, Chris. And I am so touched and charmed by your introduction of this book. Well, I think it is absolutely one of the best debut novels I've read in a long time. And I mean it when I say I don't know exactly how you are able to build that voice, but I hope we'll, uh, we'll talk about that a, a little later on. I wanted to start with the idea of where the genesis for all this could be different came from, and how did your main character come to you? That makes sense. Um... You know, all this could be different grew out of what I thought would be a long short story um, titled Milwaukee. And when I started writing it, I thought, well, this is going to be a more than anything, a story of the modern office, a little bit satirical. You know, um, Halle Butler's The New Me was a book I'd read around that time. And I liked many things it did, the sort of mordant, um, mordant humor at play um, and a sort of sharp eye for the absurdities of um, you know, corporate life under late capitalism, particularly if you're at the bottom of a certain kind of pecking order. Mm -hmm. And when I pictured the short story, I pictured it being woven throughout with this thread um, of this, um, you know, disaffected queer love story between the, you know, young consultant that I had conceived of as, as the sort of narrator of the short story and, um, you know, this magnetic ballet dancer. But as I wrote more and more pages, I've kept being confronted with a realization which was this was not a short story I had no idea how to sort of push it into the the correct amount of shape or constraint that the form would require and that the voice um, that was sort of unfurling on the pages in front of me wasn't actually cool or disaffected um, in as much as it wished to be perceived as cool and disaffected and aloof. And underneath this voice, I felt this pulsing, pained heart. I don't know how else to say that. So I think the voice came first. It revealed 
you know, it revealed the character of Sneha, the book's protagonist to me. Um, I really didn't have any ambition to, you know, write something that ended up being this, I think not just this critique of capitalism, but an, an argument for a sort of large-hearted, gutsy, you know, relational style between people, um, an argument for uh, trying to envision better ways of relating to each other um, and better dreams we can dream for each other. All that came from paying real deep, close attention to what every character was doing as they revealed themselves to me. That's such an interesting point you make about realizing that your character's voice was performative of a certain kind of sound of coolness and power. And in, in my mind, I those were often that kind of performance was overlapped with a gender performance as well. One of the most engaging aspects of, of the novel is the various ways in which you both court and then refuse certain kinds of gender structures and norms, mm. but also the stereotypical ways in which a character might strike back at such gen gender expectations. You have on the one hand, Sneha, who refers to herself and her desires early on as mannish, as having the mannerisms and affectations of the men she knows and works with. Mm -hmm. On the other, there is Tig, who renounces gender as society would, would place her into it and switches pronouns to they as part of her desire for a different form of community. What was your thought process as you imagined gender and its performances at play here? That's a beautiful question. One of the things I knew about Sneha um, was that she was really invested in a particular kind of masculinity as affect. Um, I don't know that I saw her presenting in a very masculine way aesthetically, um, and one of the things I wanted to write, partly because it um, mirrored experiences of mine that I wish to see more represented, was a certain kind of like femme for femme queer romance, um, mm. which is what I think Sneha and Marina have. But it just felt true to me about this young person that she was really invested in what I can't help but call a masculinity and particularly a masculinity of emotion. And there seem to be very good reasons for that. Um, I think that a lot of masculinity, which I think is something that people of any gender can hold to different degrees, um, is something that can be, it's an easily punctured thing. It requires various kinds of scaffolding. It requires protection and silence. And um, these were all things that felt part of who Sneha was. And something I kept thinking about each of these characters was about their personal histories and the, the personal histories that I dreamed up for them driving um, their actions in the moment and their beliefs in a given moment. Um, that, that seemed important to the novel's politics. I think this is a novel that really tries very hard to never, never suggest this is how a character should act. You just mm -hmm. see how characters act. Mm -hmm. And you can draw your own conclusions. I think the gender and its performances are simply part of how all of us move through the world, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that in order for me to get these characters right, I needed to be able to gesture towards their relationships towards, um, towards class, gender, and race. 
And then the final thing I'll say, because I think you started off the question talking about the voice and um, withholding. (laughs) Here's what I'll say. I really wanted this novel to hold people's attention. And I felt like I felt like I tried to create a variety of ways of doing that part, you know, partly through plot and suspense. But when I read, I read for voice and character. And I had this idea of you know, maybe maybe 40 pages into the novel draft that I was working on, I thought, what if you had a testimonial, something that functioned like a testimonial that didn't sort of lay lay everything bare immediately and sort of like open up um, too easily, but kind of engaged in a kind of coy seduction with the reader where you had this pattern of withholding and unfurling, withholding and unfurling at the sentence level, at the level of disclosure. And I think that's a lot of how Voice of Sneha was created. I felt very much that sort of lasso of being drawn in by the the voice that that both gave and and hid and and revealed and and hid away, and the way you describe it makes me understand how yes the obviously there are parts of the plot that are also driving, but it really is the the way in which that we are engaged with the voice while being shown things happening that don't have to fall into certain expected ways of of coming into being and it is, you know it, it very much is in engrossing and uh, and and I found just sort of revelatory in in some ways, and I think thank you for saying that oh my pleasure um, one of the things I loved is that you know, nothing is off limits for you about human life or behavior and your your desire to sort of vivify and inhabit those things with language mm-hmm. uh, is really something that I think sets the novel up apart and this includes sex mm-hmm. the sex scenes in this novel are explicit and beautiful and sometimes messy and i was wondering what it was like to turn your descriptive eye on that most intimate of human behaviors um what a beautiful question so when i was writing my very first draft um i knew there would be sex scenes but I had pictured maybe a higher degree of a certain kind of decorous, cin- like cinematic cutting to black, you know, mm-hmm. something, <laughs> <laughs> something to please the MPA, um, so to speak. Um, and going back to this notion of really paying attention to voice and really holding some kind of fidelity and responsibility to my characters, particularly my main character one of the things that became very apparent to me was that this was someone who was just saturated in shame. And I know a little bit about what that's like, you know? I um, I come from cultural contexts where shame is part of an ordering impulse um, in society. Um, it, you know, is part of what shame and certain kinds of shynesses can just like attend the questions of the body generally and intimacy generally, but particularly the deviant body, the queer bodies seeking intimacy. And so it just appeared to me, you know, this phrase, 
the sex in this book, the intimacy in this book has to write against shame. Hmm. And it seems like that, you know, killing the light switch, cutting to darkness was a product of like a delicacy that masks shame really. So that informed my decision to sort of just like write as honestly and fearlessly as I could. Um, and, you know, not not worry about <laughs> what is someone in my extended family going to think, not worry about, yeah, how, how these scenes would be read, but just to write them, like, you know, as I wished to read them. I think that I approach the sex scenes um, less as arenas of titillation and more as character building exercises. I wanted to say, okay, here's the other side to the eager... Yes, yes, sir, office drone that we see in Sneha. You see, I think in the sex scenes, you see someone who is really bravely against all odds reckoning with the fact of her desire. And that seemed really important to me. It seems like an important thing for readers to know about this character. You don't separate out desire as something, uh, you know, other than the the nature of someone's being. It is a it is as much a part and an important part as all the other characteristics we call self. Yes, I absolutely agree. I think that desire. I think we can have different kinds of desire, right? I think that desire is the engine for this book in many ways. You have Sneha's desire for safety. You have her desires for advancement, her desires around the pained love that she feels for her parents um, and the ways in which they have been mistreated, but also maybe failed her. But more than anything, I would argue that for, for, for a large section of this novel, you have the fact of Sneha's desire as a queer woman, um, her desire for other women, and the feeling of impossibility that she braids that with. And I think that the feeling of impossibility, the feeling that like at some point she has to grow up and be an adult and marry a man that her parents choose for her without the possibility of love or lust or desire. I think that's really something that that's really where desire becomes injected with a degree of desperation um, mm -hmm. and hunger for her. And I think that's what you see. I think that's absolutely part of, you know, that's sort of the molten core of who this young person is in many ways. Um, you know, the fact that she wants this so badly and also wants, you know, even as she makes herself unknowable frequently through lies and deceit and omission, she really wants to be known and loved. Mm-hmm. As I was reading, I felt like uh, Matthew Desmond's Evicted uh, is, was an intertext to your novel. Mm. I don't know if you've if read his work on eviction at all. I have, yeah. It's set, and you know, Evicted is set in Milwaukee. Yeah, that's that that it, it, you know the his examination of Milwaukee and their racist and destructive laws governing ev eviction in that city seemed to find this new, more descriptive life. And all this could be different. What's your interest in eviction, and were you influenced at all by his study? Um, I would say that I'm, you know, absolutely like full of admiration for Matthew Desmond's work. Um, I read Eviction as I, um, I'm trying to remember when I read it in conversation with a book. I think I'd read maybe a third of it around the time that 
it came out. Um, and then I had to return the book to the library. And then when I was writing All This Could Be Different, I, you know, frankly, drew from some of my own or some of my friends' experiences with landlords and eviction. Um, but I also wanted to at least have an understanding for myself of some of the policy and historical piece of it. So I am flattered that you say that, um, you know, evicted feels like, you know, a, a, a text that the novel is in conversation with. I think that's true. I think that what I find, like one reason why this novel sort of returns again and again, I think, to the specter of landlordism and eviction is in part because this is an immigrant story and most immigrant, I would say most immigrant narratives have at their heart the question of what does it mean to find a home? What does it mean to make your life, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. I think that um, it just, it seems like this constant tension, the, the, the these characters were battling, um, or sorry, the, let me say that again. It seems like this constant tension and source of worry and conflict for these young people's in these young people's lives that at the whim of capital or an unpleasant representative of capital um like sneha's property manager you could lose something you need to live which is a roof over your head you know mm -hmm, like if you mm -hmm. are homeless in milwaukee winter you are not going to have a long or pleasant life um, you know, I, and so there, I think that it was just something that I hold important to me at a political and emotional level, um, and something that is so grievously wrong with the system that we live in, um, the degree to which profit can be prior prioritized over people's actual lives. And so I think that that's what informs the sort of consistent, recurrence of the specter of eviction, the specter of losing your home, or, you know, um, I think healthcare is another, um, and being able to take care of your health is another sort of consistent point of return. My feeling is this is just how ordinary people live, you know? Mm -hmm. I, like, currently inhabit, like, like I'm very lucky to inhabit a middle-class existence. Um, and even then, you know, I, every now and then something will happen, like I'll get a bill from, my insurance company and be like, what is this? Um, and it, you know, ruins, <laughs> it ruins the week. I think this is something that so many of us deal with um, as being part of the precariat, you know, mm -hmm. where it like our lives don't look like what we've been conditioned to think of as anything close to poverty, but it's, you know, one, one wrong move by the fates and then you're struggling. Oh, that's so true. To really switch gears for a second, um, your descriptions of meals and culinary desires and the sharing of food with company and lovers are glorious and hunger-making. They're also contrasted in the novel by the reality of what it's like to go hungry. Mm. On page 193, you describe Sneha's eating of a Wendy's sandwich after having been hungry for many days. Quote, I ate it like it was the food of the gods. This is what it was like to be hungry. You are on fire, smoke suffusing you. 
the heat mm-hmm. inside impossible to ignore, what it, it is like to be hungry, time loses meaning, turns elastic and useless, traps you in knots, what yeah. it is like to be hungry, like no good thought can stay within you for long. Happiness itself metabolizes minutes, your body sopping up its calories like bread with soup, reverting to the pre-existing ache. Why did you want to engage both glorious abundance and true lack and hunger? Food is one way in which, for any of us, our material realities and the political issues that you know we see in the newspapers um, become concrete to us become something we literally consume and something that we literally require to stay alive. And so there's something very useful and expedient to me about a certain kind of food writing um, I wanted in this novel um, for food to function in a couple of ways. I wanted food to signal Sneha's sort of petty bourgeois myth-making about herself when you see her go to the new American restaurant and, you know, um, play act her security. Um, I wanted to show her point of origin when she goes to India to see her parents and you see the kind of food that they eat um, because I think that that's part of character building and place building for me too, um, what what people eat. Um, And I wanted just, you know, I wanted food to signal both her false ascent, but then her descent, you know? Um, And I think that this book holds in multiple ways, I think, a critique of capitalistic systems. Um, And one way in which it does that is by sort of gesturing towards this idea that, hey, it could be you, Mm -hmm. you know? I, like, Sneha is not you know, I, I, I conceive of Sneha as sort of generally coming from like a lower middle class background. You know, I think that her class um, and her family class status sort of um, varies um, over the course of the narrative and the narratives dipping back into time. But um, and, and so it also just seemed truthful that, you know, this this one character could have um just like a, a, a varied range of resp- like experiences that mirror, I think, the experiences of the precariat where, you know, you have at some point the experience of eating the fancy Agnolotti pasta um, that costs, you know, like upwards of $22. But you also know what it's like to like eat a mayonnaise sandwich. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. 
Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hmm. Mm-hmm. You did a food diary for Grub Street. Everyone should check this out. Um, it can only be described as a global food tour through New York City. I thought I had a broad palette. I was wrong. Clearly, um, this is partly the wonders of New York City with things sort of at your at your fingertips. But your exuberance for and really omniliteracy with food is spectacular. Can you talk about your daily food odyssey and, and how you decided to um, do this work for Grub Street? <laughs> Um, that's, that's really funny. I mean, I think that it's absolutely true that I, I think I eat a particular way because I live in New York city and I have sort of endless access to different kinds of food. And, um, and yeah, I think that I would never, I would never describe myself as a foodie. I have never described myself as a foodie, but I like food. I, I think that I'm invested in, especially given how difficult the world often is, right? I'm invested in pleasure and different and inviting it into our lives in different ways. I think that the novel is explicitly interested in pleasure as part of its um, reading journey, I think. Or this Absolutely. Book, like the, the map it, it, it creates for the reader in their hopeful um, reading journey. And I think that food is a source like of pleasure and sustenance it's you know it's it's definitely a way to make um, politics personal, and um, you know. But the reality is like not every day in my life is a food odyssey. This morning I, um, you know, made myself I made myself eggs and kimchi and toast. You know, I um, will probably have some Indian. That food sounds leftovers. pretty awesome. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that um, this is one way you know, at the risk of getting a little personal, this is what I'll say, which is I have at different times in my life gotten fairly depressed. And when I, and I definitely know what it's like to eat the depression meal, which for me heavily features ramen Hmm. and Wonder Bread and, you know, just (laughs) just food that's a little bit sad. And Mm -hmm. I think that one way in which I try to, um, you know, keep myself on, on a certain kind of pathway of, thriving is by eating tasty and nutritious food and like preparing it with people I love. And I think it's something that everyone should have a chance to do, but for many reasons, not everyone can. That's very true. Um, and, and while what you say uh, is very true about New York having that uh, abundancy at, at one's fingertips, I know a lot of New Yorkers who eat at the same set of restaurants or takeout places again and again and again. And it seems like your your mantra of taking some happiness and pleasure in the diversity of food is gives you a, a different picture on that. Totally. I think the other thing, you know, since you mentioned the Grub Street, um, which is, you know, for the uninitiated, a food diary that New York Magazine sometimes asks people to keep. Um, And I think they asked me to keep it for a week because I had a book coming out. Um, (laughs) And I, I think the thing that felt very apparent to me after recording my exploits (laughs) during a very chaotic week in my life was the degree to which like food also enables care. Um, Mm. And I think that the not like, I think in the novel, in my work as an organizer um, 
and in so many aspects of how I look at the world, I think of care as this very beautiful shaping force, something that is really this umbilical cord towards, you know, for us towards what it means to be human. And quoting, I think it is the artist Jatovia Gary, who has a piece that's like, it's like this neon piece and the, the words are written out, care is the antidote to violence. And I think about that often. I think I hold it close. That that leads me to a question about the aid organization you founded during COVID, Bedsty Strong, which mm-hmm. certainly seems to act out that um, uh, that particular quote. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what Bedsty Strong does and and why you founded it? Sure, of course. So um, in March of 2020, um, I <laughs> was one coming out of some degree of depression um, and also dealing with the loss of my, you know, a couple of my freelance gigs, which were how I made a living at the time. And I was reading the news a lot because I was at home and, you know, not feeling my best. And I was reading the news coming out of places like Wuhan and then eventually places like Italy. And I just was filled with the certainty that COVID would be coming for the U.S. shores um, and that we probably had about 10 to 14 days in New York City, where I live. And so um, one thing led to another. And I thought, you know, just felt this real certainty in my bones that we would that we might be in sort of a full lockdown situation. I know some of my neighbors, I knew that they would have a very hard time if there was a full lockdown situation, because they are elderly, um, or otherwise have like mobility based illnesses. And so I thought, we need to organize, we need to get organized, and we need to organize in proximity because geography is going to matter if there's lockdowns and we need to organize online because of lockdowns. And so I made a Slack network um, that anyone could join if they sort of had access to a particular link and walked around my neighborhood, Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, which is um, pretty large. It's 160,000 people. Um, and I put up these little flyers on, you know, um, street lamp posts and, um, you know, the like. And the first day, 60 people joined. The next day, 100 new people joined. You know, this was a week before Shelter in Place was instituted Mm. in New York. And what ended up happening in this really profoundly horizontal and collective way, um, a way that did not involve, you know, me acting as some sort of mutual aid CEO, but something that really came out of many people talking at once, you know, to each other and working, you know, like we were in this strange, miraculous ant colony or something. Mm -hmm. Um, What really happened was the creation of this first you know, small and plucky, and then eventually like immense and robust mutual aid network where people participated in supporting each other. And, um, you know, it wasn't the sort of, it wasn't what I would call a sort of like soup kitchen model where there were the helpers and the helped and very clear lines between them. There were like, you know, there was this idea that everybody, I think the animating idea behind Best Eye Strong was everybody has needs and everybody can help in some way. And this is all about the beauty of our community's help meeting our community's needs. It was really, it was really also a response to um, uh, the prediction that, you know, the U.S. government, especially at the federal level, would not be adequately prepared for this. So, I yeah. wish you were wrong about that, but you <laughs> certainly weren't. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes it pays to be pessimistic, um, you know, 
I, I feel like I am more pessimistic than I am hopeful, but I think I am ultimately hopeful. Um, and I think that's probably something that's tonally present in my novel as well. But Bestia Strong in the first year of its life, you know, supported 28,000 people, raised and redistributed the equivalent of $1.3 million. The average donation was $68. We used cash apps like Venmo and PayPal um, to make that happen. So it was really this incredible experience. Um, after two years, earlier this year, I stepped down from it, partly because I thought with the book coming out, I was already getting so busy that I didn't want to leave anyone hanging, you know, um, and didn't when I didn't have the capacity to be sort of a visible leader of anything. But Bedstuy Strong now is doing less explicit food security work and has really morphed into this really beautiful collective work working on a bunch of different issues, whether it's vaccine or healthcare access or political education or supporting um, incarcerated, like or formerly incarcerated neighbors. It's it's taking that sort of principle of our communities help and support and love meeting our communities needs and injustices, um, but broadening its focus in a variety of ways. That is really beautiful. Uh, I, I'm certainly going to link to Bedsty Strong um, so that folks can find out more. And if they are interested in in making a donation, they'll be able to find it at the website. Before I before I leave you, I'd love to know what you're really enjoying reading right now, and what's on your bedside table that you just can't wait to finish. Oh my God! So I'm reading this novel by Akil Kumarasamy called Meet Us by the Roaring Sea. I'd really liked her short, sto- her short story collection, Half Gods, which I also recommend. But this novel is super interesting. Um, about halfway through, it's playful and inventive and genre bending. It's, you know, really engages with grief and care and imagination. Um, and I so far, I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend it. That sounds and, fantastic. Yeah, I think that a book that is on my to-be-read pile is The Shanai Virtuoso um, by the Gujarati writer Dumketu. And it's translate, It's a first work of a Gujarati translated and published in the U.S. And it's translated by the writer Jenny Bott. Mm. Um, so I think those are, those are the books that come to mind right now. And then, oh, last thing, this is a book that won't be out for a minute, but everyone should think think about it now. Um, I just finished um, this amazing essay collection by Sabrina Imbler that it's called How Far the Light Reaches, and it will be out in December from Little Brown. And it's basically this, like, it's these meditations on sea creatures um, combined with sort of like personal personal essays and personal narrative, and it's so beautiful. Wow, that one sounds so exciting. I I'm I, I don't know I any of these three, and I'm I'm so looking forward to them. Sarah Thungam Matthews, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure to talk to you and to learn more about your incredible debut novel. Thank you so much. This is a true pleasure. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to Sarah Thungam Matthews for a wonderful conversation. You can find her recommended books with links to independent bookstores at the website burnedbybooks.com. 
There you'll also find a link to donate to the nonprofit aid agency that she founded, Bedsty Strong. Next week, I'll welcome debut novelist and technology reporter Wahini Vara to the show to talk about her first book, The Immortal King Rao. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.